Well, let us pray. God of us all, take our ears and hear through them, take our minds and think through them, and take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So, um, 10 years ago, I had a sabbatical, which, thank you again. Uh, and 10 years ago, I had a chance to travel to Israel, Palestine. And the first week that I was there, I hiked the Jesus Trail. The Jesus Trail is a 40-mile pilgrimage that runs from Nazareth to Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee. And if you were here 10 years ago, you might remember that when I got back, I talked about it and I showed some pictures. And I'm aware that you have to be a little careful how often and how many pictures you show to people you know. But it's been 10 years, so I'm going to show some pictures today. So, <laughs> Gordon, all right. So here you can see the trail uh, starting. So this is in Galilee. This is in the northern part of, of Israel from Nazareth, and it heads up along the sea uh, to Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee. So let's go to the next one. Uh, starts in Nazareth, where Jesus, of course, would have spent much of his growing up years. And in the middle, you can see there the Basilica. Well, yep. You can see the Basilica of the Annunciation. And um, it's meant to uh, look like a white, a white lily. And from Nazareth, uh, the first day, it's a fort. I did it in four days. The, the, the hike goes down to Cana, or Cana. Let's go to the next one which is the site of the miracle of Jesus uh, turning water into wine in John uh, chapter 2. And because most things in Israel and Palestine are disputed, there's actually two churches in Cana uh, on two different sites where the story may have happened. This is one of them. And then uh, go to the next one. There's a mosaic that depicts the story of Jesus turning uh, the water into wine. And uh, over the course of the 40 miles, uh, the trail goes through forested land. Let's go to the next one. Um, in fact, let's go to the next one. This is the blaze. You can see there's kind of an orange line on that blaze. That's what you look for when you're hiking, because there's other trails that run through Israel and in the West Bank and, um, uh, and in Palestine. Uh, so you look for that blaze. It runs through some wooded areas. It ran along wheat fields. It ran along highways. It ran through some towns. It also went through an olive grove. Let's go to the next one. Yeah, it's really a beautiful setting. And then... Uh, at the end of the third day, you begin to approach, let's go to the next one, you begin to approach Mount Arbel, and you can see it there in the distance. It's a pretty significant mountain. It's, it's 1,200 feet from the top down to the valley floor below. So that's the end of the third day. At the beginning of the fourth day, you go up to the very top of the mountain. Let's go to the next one. You can see the sheer cliff face near the top, and then when you get to the top, let's go to the next one, Sort of a gratuitous, gratuitous picture of me there, but um, <laughs> from the top, you get a, a fantastic view out. You can see out over the whole of the Sea of Galilee. You can see north up into the Golan Heights. Spectacular view. And then the trail goes down that cliffside. So let's go to the next one. Because they've, in, I don't know if you can see them there, but they've installed some like metal staples. They're a little like uh, what I've heard of the Via Ferrata in the Dolomites of Italy to help you get down the cliff face, and as you descend, let's go to the next one, you'll see some caves in the side of the cliff. And some of those caves are natural, and some of them have been made over time. These, these caves have been inhabited really for millennia. In the uh, 16th or 17th century, a Bedouin sheikh uh, made a castle. Let's go to one, uh, the next one. I think you can see it there. 
You can see the outlines of the castle. You can see some stairs. You can actually uh, make your way in. It's a fascinating place uh, to explore. Well, one of the most famous and really infamous stories of these caves at Arbel is from the time of Jesus. And it's told by the historian Josephus. So Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod of the birth stories of Jesus. When Herod the Great was, he was actually reappointed king of Judea by Caesar Augustus, by the Roman Empire, uh, there was a lot of pushback because Herod the Great was a sociopath. There are horrible stories told about him. There was a rebellion against the appointment of Herod as the king. And some of those rebels hid in these caves at Arbel. Well, Herod was ruthless. And so Herod, along with Roman soldiers, set up at the top of the mountain a system of blocks and tackles, and they lowered soldiers over the edge in large baskets. And when the soldiers became level with the caves, they grabbed the rebels, they threw them off the cliff to their death. And if they couldn't grab the rebels, they lit a fire and they burned the caves. It is a brutal story. It's a horrible story. Now today, Mount Arbel is a national park. It is much more peaceful. It's, it's actually an invigorating hike. And once you descend to the valley floor, the trail makes its way over to the Sea of Galilee uh, toward Capernaum. And on that last leg, there is a place, that, uh, a road that takes off to the left to the north that where you can hike up, let's go to the next one, hike up to the Church of the Beatitudes. It's thought this might be the place where Jesus preached this Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you're from the Pacific Northwest, let's be honest, it's not much of a mountain, but I'm not going to quibble with the Bible, so uh, it's very peaceful up there, it's very beautiful, and from that mount, it's easy to imagine Jesus looking out over the disciples that have gathered there and the others who have come up with the crowds. It's easy to imagine Jesus looking out over the Sea of Galilee. What I hadn't realized until I got to that point is, let's go to the next one, Gordon. Jesus also looked out from that spot, and he could see Mount Arbel. You can see it there in the distance. You can see it very clearly. And Jesus would have known this story of Herod. And the people gathered there would have known that story of Herod. And from that spot, Jesus turned to the disciples then, and to follow her still, and said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then looking at those cliffs, and knowing about all of the Herods of the world and all of the empires ever since, Jesus says to them and to us still, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And as I stood there, as I looked at Mount Arbel in the distance, I wondered, how did they believe it? And as I read the text again this week, I wondered again, how can we believe it? And how can we keep believing it? I love the words of the Beatitudes. I love to sing it earlier. I love the words of the Sermon. We're Mennonites, man. We're Anabaptists. We're Sermon on the Mount Christians. And we often sing hymns in our service with these kind of hopeful 
um, defiant words of faith. Um, we sing, my soul cries out. Remember, we all know that. So I don't know what number it is in the new hymnal. But the refrain is, my heart shall sing of the day you bring. Let the fires of your justice burn. Wipe away all tears for the dawn draws near. And the world is about to turn. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. And the world has turned. Some, I mean, fewer children die now than used to be the case even 30 years ago. Um, this country, not as overtly racist as it used to be. But just this week, in California, three mass shootings over the space of eight days, and another one, uh, it seems, last night. Um, with the war in Ukraine, this week the, um, the uh, doomsday clock was moved closer to midnight than it's ever been before, midnight symbolizing human destruction. Um, on Friday, Memphis police released a video of Tyree Nichols stopped, traffic stop, being beaten to death. And in Israel, in Palestine, the, the oppression of apartheid is erupting in violence on all sides. So, how do we believe these Beatitudes? And how can we keep believing? Go to the next one. Well, I found this sermon actually is harder to write as the week went on. Um, but I think it's helpful to, to recognize what these Beatitudes are and what they are not. One mistake we often make is to um, understand these Beatitudes as, as if they're prescriptive, as if they are directions. And when we read them that way, they become sort of transactional. If you will act a certain way, then you will be blessed. If you'll be poor, then the kingdom of God will be yours. If you'll be meek, then you will inherit the earth. So often we read the Beatitudes as if they're imperatives, as if, as if they are exhortations. They are things for us to do. But the thing is, that attempt, that approach, attempts to find happiness in the way that the world has always worked. You just have to work harder. You have to earn your keep. You have to protect what you've got. But in the sermon, Jesus is actually talking about a different way in a different world. Jesus is talking about God's way, about God's world. The Beatitudes are not about what we have to do, but they're about who God is is and what God is doing. So the Beatitudes aren't prescriptive. They're descriptive. They're not imperatives. They're indicatives. They're not telling us how to live, but describing what life is like with God, what life is like in the kingdom of heaven, in the beloved community. The second mistake we can make in reading these Beatitudes is to forget that it is Jesus who says, blessed are the poor and the meek and the ones who mourn, and the peacemakers. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, uh, they are not sort of an independent, timeless truth about the way the world is, because clearly it is not. I mean, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek and go the second mile, when Jesus says, forgive the ones who've hurt you and pray for the ones who want to hurt you, it's clearly not a description of the way the world has always worked. I mean, he was looking at Mount Arbel when he said it. He knew those stories. When Jesus says, love your enemies, well, read a little longer in the, in, in the Gospels. That can get you killed. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are about a new world that works in a new way, and it only makes sense 
if it's Jesus who is saying it. It only makes sense in a world that's being made new in and through and by Jesus. Jesus who embodied the love of God, the active, indiscriminate, just, enduring, holy, and costly love of God. If you read on in the Gospels, Jesus will be poor in spirit, and Jesus will mourn, and Jesus will be meek, and Jesus will be merciful, and Jesus will be persecuted. He'll be arrested, he'll be unjustly convicted, he'll be beaten half to death, and then they'll take him out and finish off the job when they crucify him. Jesus embodied the love of God, and Jesus endured the worst of our human impulses. Jesus comes bearing this transformative love of God that was so unsettling to the powers that be, that was so unsettling to the way the world has always worked, that we humans killed him. We killed love. And if that's the end of the story, the Beatitudes do not make sense at all. They are wishful thinking, but not very realistic. That's just not how it works. If that's the end of the story. But they say it's not. They say that God raised Christ from the dead. And the resurrection makes clear that the love of God is more powerful than hatred and fear and violence and even death. Powerful enough to make possible a new way of living together. Powerful enough that the poor in spirit and the meek and the merciful and the peacemakers really are blessed in the kingdom of heaven. The only way to believe the Beatitudes the Sermon on the Mount, it's because Jesus is the one who said it. So then the question is, can we believe Jesus? And again, it's helpful to back up just a little bit and, and think about what we mean when we say believe, because most often we understand that to believe is to accept something as true. So we believe statements, we believe assertions. We might say to someone, I believe you, meaning I believe what you told me is true. We might, if we're uncertain, we might also say something like, uh, I'm not sure what the capital of Texas is, but I believe it is Austin. I actually don't know what the capital of Texas is. What is the capital of Texas? It is Austin. Hey, you can't believe me after all. All right. Sometimes we contrast belief with, uh, with uncertainty. So we face, and this is kind of true of religion. We can say, uh, I, I don't know how it can be true, but I believe it anyway, right? We tend to understand that to believe is to accept something as true. But prior to the, about 1600, believe, the English word believe meant something different. Believe always had a person as its object, not a thing. And I think that's a really helpful distinction. It didn't mean believing something is true, but it was more like what we mean when we say to somebody, I believe in you. To believe in somebody is not really quite the same thing as believing somebody. Beyond the factual, it becomes much more relational. To believe in somebody is to trust them, to have confidence in them, to have faith in them. I'm married. I believe my wife, because she's really smart for one thing, and I've never known her to lie. But even more, I believe in my wife. I have complete confidence in her trustworthiness. I have complete confidence in her commitment to our relationship. So the question isn't just, can we believe Jesus? But more so, can we believe in Jesus? And that's a much more relational, much more personal question. Do we have 
faith in Jesus, in his love, in his grace, his wisdom, his care? Can we trust that Jesus is at work in and around and among and even through us? Can we open our hearts and our minds and our souls to Jesus? Now, it's fair to be skeptical. And so it's tempting to say, well, I'll believe it when I see it. But that's not really the, usually the way it works, is it? We don't so much believe what we see as we see what we believe. We see what we expect to see. We see what we are looking for. There's actually a number of social experiments, uh, social science experiments that have been done. And maybe you've seen some of them. I think I've even talked about some of them here. There's one uh, um, experiment where some researchers, they pinned dollar bills to a tree on, a, on a, uh, a walkway where people frequently walk. And almost nobody notices the dollar bills in the tree because who's looking for dollar bills in a tree? Or the more famous one, and I, I know I showed a video, and that was back before we were really taking very much care about copyright, so my apologies. But all you have to do is look it up. It's called the gorilla test, I think it is. And uh, people are asked to watch a video. How many of you have seen this? There's, there's teams of uh, uh, basketball. They're playing basketball, right? And some teams have black shirts and some teams have white shirts. And you're supposed to watch it. And you're supposed to count how many passes each team makes. What very few people notice is that in the midst of that video, a man dressed in a gorilla costume walks through the video. And nobody sees it. We tend to see what we believe, what we're looking for what we expect to see. And so these Beatitudes are an invitation to believe in the kind of world that Jesus described, that Jesus is making possible, and then to start looking for it. Thomas Merton uh, wrote, this would have been a while ago, he wrote, we are living in a world that is absolutely transparent, and God is shining through it all the time. If we abandon ourselves to God and forget ourselves, we see it sometimes, maybe even frequently. God shows God's self everywhere, in everything, in people and in things and in nature and events. The only thing is that we don't see it. The Beatitudes are an invitation to look, to see what Jesus was talking about, to see people who are poor being blessed with the dignity of being heard, to see people who mourn being surrounded and supported in grief, to see hungry people being fed and thirsty people being given access to clean water, to see peacemakers courageously refusing violence and seeking justice. You know, here in Oregon, thinking of uh, those, gun, uh, those deaths by, uh, by gun violence, in Oregon, it was an interfaith coalition, Christian, Muslim, Jewish people, who led uh, to the passage of Measure 114, Gun, Re uh, gun Violence Reduction Act. Um, in Israel, it's Jewish people in organizations like Bet Salem who are chronicling or documenting state violence. In Palestine, uh, the patriarchs and the leaders of all the major Christian churches in Jerusalem issued a document called Pyro, uh, uh, Kairos Palestine calling for a peaceful and a just resolution to the violence there. When we look, we can see. And it then becomes a kind of a loop. When we see what Jesus was talking about, when we see the Spirit of God at work, then we can believe in Jesus with more hope and more courage and more persistence. So on the last day on, on the Jesus Trail, there's another spot where you can go down to the Sea of Galilee. And there's another church built there because there are churches everywhere there. Let's go to the next slide. Um, the church is built on a spot where it's thought Jesus made breakfast for the disciples 
uh, after a fishing trip. This was after the resurrection. It's historian John 21. And next to the church, you can walk down on a gravel beach to the water. And on the seawall next to the church is a plaque. And I don't know if you can read that or not. But it says, the deeds and miracles of Jesus are not actions of the past. Jesus is waiting for those who are still prepared to take risks at his word because they trust his power utterly. Jesus is waiting for people, people like us, who are prepared to believe in him, prepared to take risks at his word, prepared to take the risks of forgiveness, of compassion, of peacemaking, prepared to take risks because we trust him utterly. We trust the power of his love, his wisdom, his gospel, his spirit. So may God grant us such faith and such courage. Amen.